Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello and welcome to Girl on Fire podcast on the Believe Network, New York's number one podcast network for personal growth. This is your host, Kirsten Franklin. And on this week's episode, we have Avril Lamont with us, who has been rated one of the top 10 coaches in the UK. She's a psychologist, author, speaker, and director of the Whitewater Group, through which she's been working to change the world one woman at a time. Guys, please welcome Avril Lemon. Hello. Thank you so much for being with us. All right. So, you know, I'm super, super psyched to have you on here. Um, love what you're doing in this space, obviously. <laughs> um, but, you know, really tell me, if you can, where where did this mission kind of come from? Where, Why gender equality and where does this sort of fire and what you're doing come from? Well, actually, I started in this field an awfully long time ago. Um, I was originally a clinical psychologist. That's what my degrees qualified me to do. And I kept seeing a lot of women who were pumped up on Valium and and what have you. And that fired me to thinking, well, how do we get to that position? Why can't we deal with people earlier? And the more I looked at it, I thought, well, in the workplace is one of the the places that should give us self-esteem, make us feel we're in the right place, we're playing to our strengths, etc. So why don't I go there and do it as a sort of preventive thing? Well, that was kind of naive and optimistic, but I still sort of believe that the workplace ought to be the place that utterly endorses us and makes us feel good about ourselves. And so early on, I was working specifically with women, and I remember giving my very first big speech. It's a long time ago. Very big speech. And I had been quite phobic, but I trained myself to get out there on stage, and there were 450 people in the audience. I can still see it. And there's a a newspaper cutting from that time, and and there were more eminent women than me on stage, and they were arguing for 50% representation in business, politics, every aspect of society. And at that moment, that felt utterly obvious, normal. Now, I do have the newspaper cutting and the date on it, and this gives away my age, but it was 1983. Love it. We thought 50%. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? And I think what happened, we all went on and did our lives and got busy. And I know I went into coaching, taking my psychology with me. And it was only about a decade or so ago that somebody said, what are you doing for women? And I said, oh, you know, we we are client-centered, etc. But then I looked around and realized we were dealing with senior people and where were the women? And I was so horrified that I had been gender blind and not noticed that as I was working with more senior people, they were all male. And I can tell you that coaching senior men is a joy. It's like pouring water in a desert because they've never talked about themselves, their fears. There's been nobody in their life telling them about their great strengths, etc., you might think otherwise, but actually, once men have just climbed right up to the ladder, that's often where the imposter syndrome hits them. They think, oh, how did I get here? And I'm not enjoying it much. Um, and I've lost my friends and my family along the way. So coaching men was easy. And it was only when I suddenly saw what was, you know, it's so blatantly obvious 
that I started to do research with the London School of Economics. I interviewed as many senior women as I could uh, lay my hands on, in a sense, and until I had too much fun and I had to stop and write the book. And we really looked at, at, at how you coach women to lead. And this in no way implies that women are deficient. It's that women are in a male environment all the time. And what mm -hmm. they experience is very different from the male experience in that same environment. Um, so really for the last decade, um, both one-to-one -one coaching, but also running women's programs in America, around the world, um, and the UK and Europe, um, we've worked with and endorsed some of the things that we do with women that are utterly critical to their success. Right. So let me ask you this, because I find I, I actually, you know, being in Manhattan, mm -hmm. um, being in the real estate world here, I see a lot of women. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting for me to notice that actually in the grander scheme of things across this country, it's a still a male dominated place. When I go to look for speakers for my event, I'm struggling to find women ready, willing, and able to step up and step, you know, be out there. Right. And it was just interesting. I wonder why this is like, I actually just recently also interviewed Natalie Darwitz, who's a, a, a Olympic hockey player. Right. And that's obviously a male dominated sport so much. So they don't even have like a women's version of the NHL. Right. It's just the NHL. And only one woman has ever played on it as a goaltender. Wow. It's just like, I wonder where, you know, there you are in 1983, obvious, like, yeah, okay, 50-50, right? Like, yeah. what's up? Yeah. But here we are 20 years later, yeah. more, right? And, and, we're and more. <laughs> we're, still, yeah. we're still there, but it's everywhere. It's like everywhere. Real estate, you know, in the workforce, the executives, why, why, why do you think we have matriculated in this way with such little success? Yeah, and, and I, I know exactly what you say about women because, you, you, you know, I love coming to Manhattan and you think women are kick-ass and they're powerful and they're confident. But I did some research there for a major bank that had called me in and said, Avril, tell us where we're going wrong with women. And I thought, yes, okay. Oh, you mean do consultancy first? Fine. And I happened to be, as you are, happened to be in New York. So I went and spoke to a lot of women there. And it was a similar picture. Your circumstances and your laws were different but it was exactly the same picture which depressingly was coming out about women being talked over, about women losing their position if they were silly enough almost to help produce the next generation of citizens, all of that. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I'll tell you a particularly female story, uh, a partner in one of the big four called me and I'd spoken for her at an event before in New Jersey and she called me up and said, I'm in Chicago, we've got this big event, want you as a speaker. And with true female humility going through my mind was, why me? You know, she wanted to also pay me lots of money to do it. And this Scottish modesty, you know, is in my background. I immediately thought, but there must be amazing Scottish um, American women who could do this. And what she said was, you know, you've got that, that mixture of uh, passion and gravitas and also because you're outside you can say things uh, boldly that we would be put too polite to say i think okay i'll go then which was great because i love chicago uh, and i love the event but i think we're maybe looking at it the wrong way around we're wondering why it still exists when in fact it's been perpetuated for eternity 
And yeah. every time we move forward, and you know, I think why we were talking like that in the 80s is because the 70s and waves of feminism had happened. Uh, and we all got the woman's room sent from America when we were students. We'd all read that. We knew it had changed. And then I think we knuckled down and we knew we were as good and we, we, we worked on. And we wanted to ignore this kind of systemic unfairness. We wanted to ignore what is nowadays called unconscious bias. And I've decided to go back to just calling it bigotry because I don't know that it's that unconscious. Uh, right. There are such strongly held beliefs, even in you know nice guys, whoever they are. When you scratch a little, if they're not consumed by political correctness, you suddenly hear what they really think. Um, you know, a client of mine who was, you know, exec in a bank, large bank, global bank, decided strategy. She decided to leave for more money to a less pressurized role. And her male colleague said, yes, but your husband's got a good job, so you must just work for the pin money. And I, I did take that back into the bank and quoted it. And there were people around the table with their heads in their hands saying he didn't say that. And I said, well, hallelujah, he said it, because now we know what's actually at the back of people's minds, which is why more women are made redundant when there are cutbacks, because really, People believe they've got a man looking after them, despite all the statistics to the contrary and however patronizing that is. So I think we haven't, as a psychologist anyway, I feel people have learned vocabulary. Everybody has a head of diversity and inclusion in their firm. And we've not changed beliefs one iota. Right. In certain it all starts there for everything, right? Mindset, whether it's for you and your success or the success globally or how we look at things. You said a few things though, and, and, the, and I want to touch upon that. You talked about your Scottish modesty, but what I want to say is I think women for, again, and this is a, a systemic upbringing, mm-hmm. we're not supposed to be ballsy, tell how awesome we are. We're not rock stars. We're not, dude, I'm better than you. I should get this job, right? That would be obnoxious. Right, that would be whoa, so unladylike. Like, yeah. who is this woman? Oh, she's horrible. Yeah. Guy says that, and it's like, yeah, yeah, rock star. You know, it's like what? And I think lang- Sorry, you were saying, but I, mean, I think language is critically important, and it's a bit like I'm an apostrophe Nazi. You know, I, I like my grammar right, but actually, I get so angry with words, the words that are used. And I think if we don't dig down and challenge those and make utter pains of ourselves. We're perpetuating all sorts of stereotypes. And I I actually hate the word mummy being applied to everything. When you talk about women, often you talk about them in terms of their relationships, you know, working mummies. No, Mm -hmm. there are two people in the world who earn the right to call me mummy, or I earn the right for them to call me mummy (laughs) or mum. And I don't want anybody else to call. I don't want to be called a wife. I don't want to be called a mummy. Uh, you know, it's so words like that perpetuate this um, stereotype that takes us away from we are whatever we are. I'm a psychologist. I'm a director. I love my family. But here we're talking about something else. So I think yeah. the, the way we use things like uh, what do we still get? Uh, a female fire officer. <laughs> you know, or a, a a policewoman rather than a, you know, just a police officer, please. Yeah. We are sort of 
continuing this, that the main breed of it is male, and then you get this strange aberration that's a female latter-day version that you can kind of pay less because they're not quite the real thing. So I think the language is important and the beliefs that underpin and cause that language to come out are critical. We're not changing them enough. Yeah, and actually, you know, I'm well-versed in NLP and you obviously being one of the first female uh, positive psychologists Language is important. Language in all things is important. It triggers everything, right? So that's interesting that you brought that up. I wouldn't even have actually thought about that, right? Um, and something else, you know, it's it's interesting that you're talking about the unconscious bias, the systemic unfairness. Um, <laughs> I like how you said just call it bigotry. Um, but, you know, here in America, we face that in so many ways. And we're having this Black Lives Matter movement going on here. And I don't think that everyone gets how this systemic unfairness works, right? And so, but look at look at their movement here in this country from Martin Luther King to all of these things happening and all of these steps, it's kind of, and I'm not going to equate it to like women in the workforce, but it's that same systemic unfairness yeah. that just yeah. keeps, keeps us down, keeps them down. And people don't get it. Like people just don't get that big picture. And it's interesting. It's interesting. So like, you know, let me ask you, at least with respect to women in, in the workplace and diversity, first and foremost, what do you think the real value is in having women on the board? Why be diverse? Why is that important? I know. I, I, I sort of am a bit, I, I don't mean I'm bored with you asking the question, but I've got to the point where I think, why are we even asking this question? We've had year on year on year of results. If there was any other variable that affected the share price as positively and significantly, shareholders would be rioting to make changes. Yeah. But time and time again, we've shown that the, um, the factors, the insights that women bring, when they're not pretending to be men, when they're, they're actually allowed to be authentic, the difference, thinking and skills and relevance that affect the bottom line. And that mm -hmm. has been proven over and over again. So for people not to have changed their board structure, for, for the exec groups not to be balanced and diverse, is a willful act of reducing profits and, and mm -hmm. affecting the economy of countries. There's a, there's a book I'll recommend by an American. <clears throat> I met her here at Oxford, uh, Linda Scott, and she's just brought out the book, The Double X Economy. And uh, it, it was funny because I got angrier every day I read it. <laughs> We've had very hot weather, so I was sitting outside in the heat trying to read this, getting more and more furious. And um, she really puts a lot of the initial trouble back at the fact that economists are male. And it's a bit of a closed shop. And therefore, at no point do they look at the impact on the economy of female wealth and worth. And mm. this, in a way, perpetuates it. You know, there are other factors, whether it's religious or tradition or whatever. But it's a very interesting book. But I, you possibly don't, wouldn't get the, the Friends reference, but there was a moment when Joey was very scared about reading a book and he put it in the freezer to calm down. So I almost had to put me and the book in the freezer because I was getting angrier by the moment. Because these people would go to countries and they would interview the men. And they yeah. never, ever factored in the female. But they especially weren't factoring in the economic benefit, the benefit to GDP, as let alone health and well-being. So 
to be holding that back has to be almost deliberate. Because if you're in business to make money, you want diversity of thought, uh, you want diversity of opinion. However, we are all in our own echo chambers. If you are, bless them, a male, pale and stale, you know, white, middle-aged man who's made it and been successful, your insight is limited. We found with um, looking at organizations, if men had a working, you know, career wife or wife with a career, a woman with a career, a partner with a career, they were much more open to the concept of women. But that generation, many of them still had non-working wives. But the factor we thought was even more important was if they'd ever had a female friend. Mm. If they haven't had a female friend, they've never had a woman complaining about being talked over or any of these soft conversations where they can absorb things. Suddenly, some men wake up when it's their daughter's turn. And we are so congratulatory. I mean, I'm being out there at the moment. They were so, how fantastic. They've changed their ways because of their daughters. And I'm always the one saying, but what did they do for their wives? Yeah. Um, they didn't necessarily encourage their wife's career. And we know that in terms of good relationships, uh, good marital happiness, amount of sex, all of that, um, it really increases if you have a dual career family um, and right. you've worked out how to do that. So, on the one level, our economies would do better, our businesses would do better, relationships would do better. So why are we still making it hard for women to get through? Um, you know, and I don't That's need to put out conspiracy exactly. theory, but begin to wonder. <laughs> right. And so um, let me ask you this. You're talking about, you know, obviously the language, the systemic sort of unfairness that we're all brought up in, um, you know, how, besides changing the language, what if we were to walk away and men and women listening to this could do one thing besides change the language, what could they do? I think it's that old phrase of raising consciousness. Um, because if you are the privileged person, and I'll, I'll tell a story against myself. I spent a month last year in Rwanda, which was fabulous. I was due to be back there this year. I was working and socializing and seeing animals, fabulous. When I came back, I looked for an image to go on one of our you know, promotions, whatever. Right. It took 150 before I could find women, women of color, and a slightly gay-looking man, and I had to compromise. <laughs> got, I got slightly versions of that. And I think because I had been living in, in a black population, I suddenly saw the world differently. And I'm not proud it took me so long to think that way. But I think many men just don't see, and as women, we don't want to keep complaining and pointing out um, because our voices can be irritants, it would appear to many people. If we constantly are pointing out we've been talked over, we get shrill. So all of these things are about awareness, about us recognizing our privilege. Um, and I mean, I recently, you know, following on from the Miranda experience, I've been trying to broaden my understanding because I realized that I, you know, 10 years ago when we wrote the book and we're now doing the second edition of it, 10 years ago, we didn't even mention BAME. Now, I'm London-based. If we're talking about women, 30% of women in London are BAME. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, when we're tackling women, we are tackling a topic like that as well. Um, but we didn't come out in a sense and, and talk about it openly. So many people are still, okay, I'll use the word unconscious. So I think we've got to be out there, we've got to be talking. And certainly in the UK, the things that have worked better is forced transparency. So the mm-hmm. law was that you had to publish your figures on how many women were on the board. That was the first one, again, 10 years ago. And there was a lot of, of um, uh, well, criticism. There was also a lot of laughing at those firms and, and name-calling almost because they were fuddy-duddy or whatever you choose to call them. Then we also had legislation where you had to show your um, the gender pay gap and you were seen to be addressing it. So being called out, being made visible, uh, being in competition with other companies like your own, and they were doing better, that has all worked to a degree. It's not solved at all yet. So I think transparency, um, raising people's consciousness, having the conversations before it gets shrill, um, and what I do, and I've had to consult my conscience about it because I work a lot with women and what I'm not doing is fixing anything broken. I'm working with women regarding the fact that they're in an alien environment. Um, I'm not good at sports analogies, but it's, you know, they're not on the same ballpark. They're not even in the same park. They're often not even in the same country. So getting on any level playing field takes a while. And so that's why we work usually with groups of women so that you begin to get this cohort and this groundswell of people encouraging and competing with each other, but forming a kind of a women's um, support group. We don't call it that, but just helping them see what success will be for them. Right. Because often the images of success they're given are of no interest. You know, the, the, the pictures of highly succeeding men, you know, Wall Street in the past and what I mean, it didn't really appeal. When you start to talk to women about what will success mean for you, it's not always about those trappings. It's often about the opportunity to change things, do something differently, do something better. And you can't do that till you get position, into positions of good power. So that's where we find their ambition because yeah. the images they're given don't appeal that much. Yeah, and I forget where, who did what research, but it was shown that if you make a man a millionaire, you just helped his family. When you make a woman a millionaire, you you save several generations yeah. and have a financial education that, that kind of trickles down. So that's interesting. Um, I had a question for you. It's more personal than anything, just because I want to I want to compare apples and oranges, right? You know, you and I both work a lot with men, mm-hmm. whether they're executives, athletes, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it interesting that I actually see less women coming to coaches for any reason. Do you see yeah. the same thing? I wonder what that's about. <laughs> I'm really my own. So I'm like, I'm all about it, but of course I do it. So I know the, the, the glory and the benefit, right? But what's that, do you think? Well, I think there are several strands. I think men all their lives, uh, can you help me? Yes. You know, whether it's a mother, a PA, a wife, uh, colleagues, they don't see any shame in that. Girls from very early on, despite all the other things, grow up being independent. I'll do it myself. And it's a weakness if I have to ask for help. Um, My worst example, and I stepped out of coaching mode with this lovely woman who got this 
big promotion. She was so entitled to it. And I knew her boss. And she said, well, I'm so grateful they've given me this. And I think if we could have some coaching, what I'll do is I'll ask them to take that money out of my salary rise um, to pay for the coaching. And I went, okay, you've got a choice. I can slap you or your boss can slap you, but at no <laughs> point are you doing that. Any man going into the job would say, well, this is a perk. I expect to have coaching because exactly. they don't see it as any kind of failure. They see it as part of the big support group that they need to do very well. And they're kind of entitled sweeping generalization but it's what I found therefore again women miss out and that has a knock-on effect on their success on their pay levels their retirement money you name it and that's why we're trying to work earlier and earlier with women because they've already made mistakes which have decelerated their careers and their success because they don't ask for a pay rise they don't ask for Okay, you can't give me a pay rise right now. Well, what development can you give me? And right. um, just asking for those things makes a big difference in how you get on and how you're perceived. Yeah. I also kind of feel like for women specifically, we're the only humans on the planet that are supposed to do 80 million jobs perfectly. And like you said, if you get that outside help, you're kind of like, oh, you're weak. Yeah. Like you couldn't do that. You couldn't be the best mom, wife, and executive. You couldn't do those three whole jobs that take people their whole lives to perfect in the one vertical. Yeah. You couldn't do that without any help. Oh, oh yeah. I feel bad for you. Right. Like, <laughs> okay. Like The number of times I've had, again, stepping out of my coaching role where I've gone, right. Okay. Why don't you have a cleaner? And Oh no, they wouldn't do it well enough or whatever. I said, look, you're deliberately depriving a poorer woman of a chance to benefit her children and change their lives because you want to be this harassed and be falling out with your husband and be doing this on Saturdays and be questioning the value of your job because of it. Let's rewind that. And um, we, we look at uh, kind of almost from the perspective of resilience, what is the support group you need to function? And just as in work, you would outsource, you would delegate. Why do women, myself included, often do these ridiculous things rather than find the expert who can do it for you? And right, it goes back to beliefs. I have to do it all because I am superwoman who feels like a failure a lot of the time because I'm not doing them all at 100%. Yeah. So we need to change the beliefs. But one of the things we need to be doing is negotiating with people in our life from a very early stage uh, about how are we going to run this, whether it's a partner, whether it's about children, whether it's about dual careers. Many people have a much more profound conversation about getting a dog than they do about how they're going to both pursue their dreams of careers, how they're going to uh, pool their wealth, invest in themselves. Right. The minute they kind of get married, <laughs> assumptions start being made. And yeah. it sounds so unromantic to say, no, 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 you start now. You start talking about these things and it'll be better for both of you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, sometimes I have to break it down. Time value of money, too. Yeah. If you can't let go of it, dude, really, like, and I, I talk to all of my clients, especially the female ones. I'm like, why the fuck are you going grocery shopping? 
get that shit online, hire a housekeeper for the 20 bucks you pay them for the hour. You just made $1,300. What's wrong with you? Yeah. Right. You had time with your kids. You had sex with your husband. I mean, come on. Like, you know, why are you doing your laundry, cleaning the house? Right. Like, are you kidding me? Like, please. I'm like, this is why, um, you know, we do this process about negotiation. And the first person you have to negotiate with is yourself. How can I let go of this? What are the voices? And I tell the story of every now and then rushing home to bake scones, which are biscuits for you, um, (laughs) for my children. And I, I can do fancy stuff. I'm not very good at the humble scone. And so they would very sweetly put down the apples that were going to eat and eat my scones. And eventually, I am a psychologist, I'd say, well, why am I doing this? Well, it's what a mother does. And I think, mm-hmm. no, my brilliant mother, who should have had a fabulous career, she did it as a trap. You know, you come in the door from school, you think smells wonderful the baking you'd sit down you would talk about everything what had happened to you she'd tell you about a radio program and I I got it after a few years of doing this I thought it's about communication it's not the scones (laughs) so I can tell you I sat and watched a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer with my (laughs) girls um and you know admired vampires and what have you but we talked about all the morality that that came up and I hung out with them when we spent time and I didn't, you know, ruin all our teeth and diets by cooking the bad stuff. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. If you would want to leave our, and I'll, I have all your links. I'm going to make sure that everyone knows how to reach out to you, uh, whether that's on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, wherever that's at. Um, but if you wanted to leave our audience with one thing, what would that be? There are so many. I think it's not over. And it's each of us really need to push this right to the edge this time. Don't do, you know, my generation let you down by pausing in the 80s and taking our eye off the ball. Now's the time to push forward, change the world and accept nothing less. That's about six things. Um, But really what I come down to is the self-belief. We've got to build up our own confidence and and go for it with that belief in ourselves so sorry far too many things there <laughs> i love it i love it and by the way what you just said applies to both men and women yes. women we need the men's buy-in okay? we need the men and don't, don't worry about it <laughs> if i leave you with um, a very old film a feminist film not quite but right at the end of pretty woman oh. when he says okay when the prince saves the princess what happens next And she, Julia Roberts, says she saves him right back. Now, I think it's it's our job to save men because I don't think the deal they've been given was a good one. They get to rule the earth, a lot of money, and have no soul and no humanity. And I think we save them by giving them choices they haven't previously ever been given when they've had to be strong men. So there's something in it for for both genders or all genders, um, and it's about equality. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. So that is it for this week. Thank you for joining me. And I hope that you enjoyed today's show. If so, don't forget to rate it. If you guys have a pressing question, feel free to tweet me at CS Thrive uh, or on Instagram at Thrive Tribe 3.14159. Again, I know that's a weird one. It's just pie. So it's three, it's Thrive underscore Tribe underscore 
3.14159. Or of course, you can join me in Facebook at my free group, which is Thrive Tribe Global. If you just search groups and you enter in Thrive Tribe Global, you should see us there um, and you can join it for free. Uh, I answer your questions in there. But if you guys send me a question through there, I will be sure to answer it here on this podcast. And as always, if you're ever interested in advertising on the show, please contact the Believe Network at Believe, B-L-E-A-V, at Believe.com. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.